Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. Good morning. I uh, had the privilege this past couple days of speaking to a conference of college students uh, from Clemson University. And uh, Dylan went with me. We had an awesome time. It was up in Brevard at a, at a retreat center up there. And it's so awesome to see the hunger for the gospel. Just to see the hunger that people have for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That <clears throat> I feel like that's something that our church has been really marked with and stamped with. And, and one of the reasons why we are a church is to, is to, to, to share with people just the truth of what it is to be a believer, to be someone who's born again, a new creation in Christ, and entrusted with the gospel of denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Jesus. With that simplicity, and what, I mean, it, it sounds simple, but within that, there's a whole lot. But it's so simple that, that if I'm following Jesus, that means I first have to deny myself. If I haven't denied myself, I'm not following Him. I can do all kinds of things. I can, I can go to church. I can be on stage. I can do all kinds of Christian things and religious activities. But if I haven't denied myself, I can't follow Him. I know it sounds so harsh, but that's Jesus. If any man would come after me, he must first deny himself. We're busy walking around trying to pick up crosses, but, but first we have to deny ourselves and say, listen, life is never again about me. The, uh, I've been born again. My issues are settled. I no longer have issues. I no longer have these, these problems. There may be things that come up in my life, but I have an answer. I have a solution inside of me. Because I'm in Christ, and He said, take heart, for I've overcome the world. And I'm in Him. So that means that anything in front of me is never greater than what's within me. And so I have, an, I have an answer to every problem that I face. Every time I face something in the world, the answers are inside of me because all things pertaining to life and godliness have been given to me freely through the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ. That means there's something in Jesus I can find that's the answer to every, everything in life. It's why, it's why He's the standard. It's why there's not a man that's the standard. It's why when we talk this way sometimes, when we speak this way, when we start talking about what it is to deny ourselves and the fact that you're not born, and, and, and again, into sin. You were born the first time into Adam. That's why you had to be born again into the second Adam, into Christ. Something changed when all things passed away and everything became new. You may not realize everything that's changed. That's what the Christian life is. It's walking out and discovering what it is that we were born again into. How great this salvation is. But I promise you, if he says that all things passed away, then all things passed away. If he said that everything has become new, then everything has become new. Because he's not a man that he should lie. And You you know, it's just also because you preach this way and people are hungry for it. Because everybody wants to believe that there's a way to live that's greater than the way that they've lived already. Because everybody has gone astray. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Every man after himself. It's, 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 what, it's what sin is. It's thinking of me first. I'm living at the expense of other people. 
And so when you start talking this way to people, it's, it's just amazing the response that they have because there's something inside of them. There's this desire for truth inside of us that says, yes, this is what it is. It's not some say a prayer and go back to life the way that it was and know that one day when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. The, the promise of eternal salvation is amazing, but there's so much in the Bible that deals with life here and now. And so we, we, were, we were just preaching this stuff and these kids are just responding to the gospel and, and they're, 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 you know, you, we, I talked from the, from, the, from the garden. I love to talk about that from Adam and Eve and just the idea of sin not changing God and, and, and what God did and redemption and, and, and the reason why they were hiding even though they were covered with fig leaves, you know, and talking about that kind of stuff. And it's all messages you guys have heard like 50 times probably. But, and these kids are just like, and they're coming alive to truth and they're understanding what it is they were saved into and what it really means to be born again, to be a new creation. And I no longer have to live the way that I lived before because there's a new king on the throne. I've stepped off and put Jesus in his rightful place. And he's now not just my savior, but he's my Lord. Guys, listen to me. There's a lot of people that you'll interact with that know him as savior, but they don't know him as Lord. And this is not just for like for me to preach or for certain people to it's for every one of us to be able to present the gospel to people. Every single one of us are called to be ministers of reconciliation, ministers of the gospel. There's people that you interact with all the time that have prayed a prayer and know him as savior. They believe that Jesus Christ died on a cross and and was raised again for their sins. They fully believe that. They know that because of their sin, he had to come and be their savior. But and they know him in this way. Because that's what's been presented to them. But they don't know Him as Lord. They don't understand what it is to wake up in the morning and be alive for something other than themselves. They don't understand the power that there is in grace to transform us, not just to forgive us. Because grace that doesn't transform is grace that hasn't been fully received. Because it never came just so that you could feel better about the fact that your sin was covered, but then go back to living the way that you lived before you received that grace. If you, if you turn in your Bibles to um, Matthew chapter 18, um, this is, it's the story of the, of, the, of the unforgiving servant. And, and, we, and I've, I've preached this before and, and talking about you know, the power of forgiveness and all that. And it's so true. All that stuff is true in there. But there's something that really stood out to me. Um, as, I was, as I was thinking about this idea of grace, it was sparked by a conversation that that we had with it, with some friends of ours that Patty and I had, and, and I was there's some things that, there was something that stood out to me that I guess I hadn't really seen before or to this level, um, and so you guys know this story, right? I'm not going to read the whole thing, probably. Maybe I will, but I don't think I'm going to. Um, but Peter comes to Jesus and he says, "Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother if he sins against me?" Am I in the wrong? Is that Matthew 18:21? Yeah. Okay. How many times should I forgive my brother if he sins against me? Up to seven times. <clears throat> Peter's thinking, I'm going to show him how, how gracious I am. And, and, and I'd forgive someone even seven times. They could do the same thing to me seven times. And I forgive them. How many times should I forgive, Lord? Up to seven times. Aren't you glad that Jesus' answer wasn't yes? Because he's only called us ever to be like him. He's the standard. So if his answer to Peter was yes, that means his answer to us would be, I'll forgive you seven times. Because he called us to 
be imitators of him, to follow him, to be like him. And so if his answer to Peter is yes, then that means that we've got seven strikes. How many of you are thankful that you've had more than seven strikes in your life? Yes, I'm thankful I've had more than 700 strikes. And so, so Jesus looks at him and he says, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And he says, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began to settle them, he, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought before him. He didn't have the means to pay, so the Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children, all that he had in repayment be made. But the slave fell to the ground. So th- this master is settling what's rightfully his. We have to understand that, that because of sin, the rightful demand of God who is holy is full repayment that we cannot possibly make. If we don't understand that, we won't un- properly value the grace that was given to us. That we actually deserve that. Because sometimes we can get to a place where we feel like, you know, we start to compare ourselves to other people. And we feel like, well, I mean, you know, it, it, their life really cost God a lot to, to redeem. But mine, I've been pretty good. You know, every one of us, life cost Him the same thing. It was the blood of His Son, Jesus. There was nobody that cost more blood than anyone else. Nobody. And so he, he comes to him and he says, this is what you owe me. I can't pay you. I can't possibly pay you. And the master does what God does. He, he forgives him the debt. Where was the man headed when God forgave him? Do you remember the story? He was headed to prison. Why? Because he said, have him, his children, thrown into prison, have his property sold, and what would prison be? Prison would be where you would stay until you could actually repay the debt. You'd work as a slave. Before slavery. And so, so he's headed to prison, but, but grace intervenes. And he says, I forgive you. And the Lord of the slave felt compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So the man who is forgiven of 10,000 goes and finds someone who owes, owes him just a tiny amount of what he was just forgiven. Just forgiven. Isn't it funny how it says, and the man went out and found someone who owed him. If we're not careful and we don't understand grace, we don't understand why it was extended to us, we'll actually look for people who have the same condition that we had, and we'll go after them. Because for some reason, we feel like we deserved it and we're thankful for grace, but on their end, we want justice. We're thankful for grace on our own life. I've done it. I've gone by a cop speeding and and thought, oh Lord, please have grace. But then somebody runs a red light in front of me and I'm like, where's a cop when you need one? Why? Because I want grace for me, but justice for them. And Jesus warned about that in another place. He said, be careful how you judge because with the measure you measure, it will be measured back to you. With the standard that you have, that's how it will be given back to you. So he goes and finds him and he's, he, he begins to choke him saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow servant falls to the ground and 
repeats back to him what he had said to the master. I can't. I can't pay you. I, 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 I don't have the ability to. Have patience with me. I'll repay you. I just can't right now. Have patience with me. He was unwilling and went through him in prison until he should pay back what he owed. So when his fellow slaves saw it happen, they were deeply grieved, came and reported to the Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, the Lord said, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? So that part has always kind of bothered me a little bit because then after that he takes him and he says, now I'm throwing you into prison and you'll remain there until you can pay back everything in full. And I thought, this parable certainly can't be to say that God takes back what he gives to us because that's not the way he is. And so I've just kind of been chewing on this for, I don't know, 14 years. And I started thinking about this in light of a conversation about grace and grace that is received but doesn't transform, is not really actually fully received. And I went back and reread this and I realized that wasn't the point of the story at all. The point of the story was this. The man was heading to prison. Grace intervened. But because the grace was only received to the point where it forgave what was owed it didn't, and didn't transform the person and actually change their heart, change the way they think, change their life to the point where their life was different and they acted differently than they did before they received that grace, then the grace actually was void in their lives and they ended up going to where they were going to go before because the grace didn't actually transform them because they didn't allow it to change the way that they lived. Grace was never supposed to just forgive you of your sins so that you could feel good about the fact that you no longer owe this penalty. It's actually a revelation of who God is. And He expects that when we receive a revelation of His heart, that His heart begins to reproduce itself inside of us so that when we find ourselves in a situation, we respond like He responded to us. That's the fulfillment of grace. That's actually the totality of grace. Now grace has accomplished its work. Because you actually have become like the one who extended it to you. And that's why that grace was extended. Because He's trying to reproduce Himself inside of us. And so when He sees someone who hasn't received that, it's not that, it's not that God came along and said, well, then I'm going to take it back. What actually happened was the person decided that they weren't going to be transformed by it. And because of that, they ended up heading in the same direction they were heading before they understood that before the grace was received. And it was their choice. Because they chose not to allow the grace to transform not only what they owed, but how they lived. That's, there's another place too that, that talks about this. But, but there was an expectation. There was an expectation the Master had that what I'm extending to you isn't just for you. It's for you first, but then it's so that it can reproduce itself in others through you. I didn't pay such a high price for your life just so that I could have your life alone. I paid a high price for your life to redeem you so that you could go out and extend that ministry of reconciliation. To others. That's what Paul says. 
He says, now we've been entrusted with this ministry of reconciliation. He says, now we see that through Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself. And so we plead uh, as though God Himself pleads through us, be reconciled to God. What's He saying? We have received this reconciliation. Now we go out and we speak as though God's speaking through us. Be reconciled to God. Receive what we receive. Why? Because grace came into Paul's life and it actually completely transformed him. He didn't just say, thank you God for forgiving me of my sin, of persecuting the church, and of being prideful, and all the things that you've forgiven me of, and then go back to living the way he lived before. He received that grace, and then he went and extended that grace every possible place that he could. Because it actually transformed his life. And that's the power of grace. It's not simply just to forgive you and free you from sin. It's to keep you from going back to it and to live differently. And our gospel has to contain both. If we ever get to a place where all we preach is grace as a forgiveness of sin and a way to get out of hell, but we don't preach the transformation of the gospel and the power that it has to actually redeem and transform and change our lives, If we don't preach that, we are robbing people of the authentic power of the Gospel. We can't stop with just having your sins forgiven because the Gospel contains so much more than that. It's why Jesus, think about it, they bring the woman who was caught in adultery to Him. So what does He do? They're ready to stone her. You've been in this position. You've done something and the enemy's standing there with stones in His hand ready to stone you. And then Jesus steps in between the accuser and you. That's what he did. He put himself in between the accuser and the woman. What is he saying? He's saying they cannot stone you because I'm going to stand here. And if they want to stone somebody, it will be me that they have to stone. This was just a foreshadowing of what he was going to do on the cross. Because they didn't do it that, that day, but one day they did exactly what he stood in front of that woman for them to do. What was he saying? I'll take your stones. I'm going to extend grace to you. But then what does he tell her? He says, he, he begins to write on the ground. Nobody knows exactly what he wrote. I think Tom Snyder's theory that he has is right. He wrote the rest of the law because they said to him, they came to him and they said, uh, the law says that if a woman's caught in adultery, she must be stoned. But actually the law said that both of them should be stoned. And, and I believe what Jesus did was he knelt on the ground and he wrote out the entirety of the law. Why? Because the man wasn't there. Maybe they set the woman up and actually had her sleep with somebody that they knew because they were trying to trap Jesus. This was all a trap. Or maybe he was a friend of theirs and they wanted to extend mercy to him, but they wouldn't to the woman. There was some reason. But Jesus writes on the ground, I think that's what he wrote. And I think that's why one by one they dropped their stones and went away from the oldest to the youngest because the people who knew the man the longest were the first people to drop their stones. The people who knew him the least were the last ones because they're thinking maybe it's worth it. Either way, Jesus offers her grace and redemption, but then He says this to her. Go and sin no more. What's He saying? This grace that I'm extending to you isn't just for this moment to cover the sin that you have committed. It's also the power to keep you walking in that place so that you actually can live differently going forward. That's the Gospel. Um, in, the, in the parable of the talents, we see this again. I love this. I've never seen any of this stuff in these, ta- in these parables before. Uh, Matthew 25, verse 24. 
It says, And the one who also had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. That always bothered me, that line. I knew you were a hard man. He's talking about God. Because in this parable, the master who gives the talents is God. And for a man to accuse God of being a hard man, it just it always rubbed me the wrong way. And I, I never understood it. And then all of a sudden, it was like God just started tying these little loose ends together. In a second, we'll get to it. He said, I knew you were a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, you wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. He says, you... You knew that I reap where I don't sow. You should have at least done something. Why? Because the only way that somebody can reap where they don't sow is if somebody else is sowing where they're reaping. Because seed reproduces after its own kind. You can't reap where there's not been anything sown. So what was he saying to the servant? He's saying, listen, you don't understand my heart. You see me harvesting where I haven't sown. You don't understand the principle that when I give seed to people, I expect them to go out and reproduce that in places so that there's a harvest where I physically haven't gone. That's what the one that had the five and the two understood. I wasn't just given this for me so that I could hide it in the ground and know that I have it. I have to use this to affect other people. So I go out and I leverage and I extend what was given to me so that other people can actually use that and gain themselves. And in the process, God gains more. And so he's saying to him, listen, you think that I'm a hard man because you look and you see me. You presume something about me that is not true. You think the only way that I'm reaping where I haven't sown is that I am stealing or robbing or taking from somebody what what doesn't really belong to me. You don't understand the way my kingdom works. I reap all over the place where I haven't physically sown because I entrust people to be wise stewards of what I give to them so they go out and sow and I come along and reap the harvest. That's what he was saying to him. This is what he, and, and it's real clear because then he says, he says to his disciples, he says, you know, first he says, take what was given to him and give it to the one who has the ten. Well, why did he give it to the one that had the most? Because he's saying, listen, I'm asking you to be wise stewards, I'm going to be a wise steward. The one who goes and out and reproduces the most in the kingdom is the one that I'm going to give more to whenever there's more to give. And then he says to him, I love this, this line right here. It makes it so clear. It says, for to everyone who has, more shall be given. He will have an abundance, but the one who does not have, even what he does, shall be taken away. What's he saying? He's saying, if you understand my heart and you take what you, what you receive and it actually changes you, and you actually go out and make an impact for the kingdom. Not just take it. Listen, so many of us have received this salvation. And when I say us, I'm saying there's been times in my life where I've done this. Where we take this salvation, or we take this deliverance, we take this victory, we take this thing that, that God did for us, and we put it in the ground somewhere. What are we saying? We're saying, I'm thankful I have this. But I put it in the ground, and then nobody else has access to it. That's never the intention of what the kingdom of God does in people's lives. It's always so that it will do for others. And he said to him, listen, you should have at least done something with it. 
That's why he said you should have at least put it in the bank. What's he saying? Listen, you may not be someone who stands on a stage and preaches for a bunch of people to hear. You may not be someone who walks around praying for every person that you see or sharing the gospel standing on a table at Burger King. Maybe you are. Look, if God calls you to do it, do it. But I'm just saying, like, maybe you're a housewife who stays home with her children. Be reproducing that in the house where you are. Into your children. So that they can go out. He's saying every single person can do something with this gospel. We are without excuse. What he was saying to him was, look, you may not have had the knowledge that the one with five had. You may not have had the knowledge that the one with two had. They went out, they obviously were really wise stewards and they knew how to invest the money. They put it into the market. They, they extended it to people. People used it. It reproduced and it got back a return. They obviously knew what they were doing. There's people who have been walking with God or people God's gifted differently that have this ability to, to, to do that and make these big reproductions. But he's saying to the, to the wicked, lazy servant, he's saying, listen, you could have done something. You can't stand here and tell me that there was nothing you could do with this gospel. You can't tell me there was nothing you could do with the grace that you received. Because you could have at least put it in the bank. Everybody can do that. Not everybody can go out into the market and double it. But everybody can do something with what we've been given. That's the whole point of the story. What's he saying? It's you didn't understand my heart. If you would have understood my heart, you never would have thought that I was a hard man and you would have actually done it. Isn't it funny that the one who hid it in the ground is the only one that didn't understand the heart of the Father and calls him a hard man? The other two servants didn't say it. They didn't say, Master, I knew you were a hard man and you sow, reap or you do not sow, so I took your money and because of fear. No, it wasn't because of fear. They took what was entrusted to them and they understood the heart of the Master. They understood, if I've been given this, it's for a reason and it's not just for me to hide it in the ground so that I can go get it whenever I want it. Not just so that I know where it is and I can go access it whenever I want it, but nobody else can. I was never given something by God just for me, ever. I've always been entrusted with something for me and then through me, it's for other people. That's what God's saying in these parables. I can show you right here that grace that doesn't transform is void because it comes straight out of the mouth of the Apostle Paul. Turn your Bibles real quick because I want you guys to see this verse. Turn there. Flip there. Scroll there. Whatever you have to do. It used to be when you'd say that, you'd hear pages turning. Now when you say that, you see faces glowing. It's the truth. There was a time where you'd say, turn your Bibles, and all you hear is the fluttering of pages. Now you just see faces starting to light up from, the, from their phones or tablets or whatever. I'm, it's okay. I, I'm there. I, I I use my phone constantly for that. First uh, Corinthians chapter 15, verse nine. This is Paul. He's writing to the church of Corinth, and he says, "For I'm the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me." This is out of his mouth. He says. The grace didn't prove vain, and here's why. In other words, it wasn't given to me in vain. It wasn't squandered. It wasn't wasted. It, it, it accomplished something. And here's how you know that the grace that was given to me wasn't given to me in vain. It's because I labored more than all of them. But not I, 
but the grace of God that was with me. What's he saying? Listen, I didn't do this on my own strength. That word with there is a Greek word that means united with or together. In other words, this grace came and became part of who I am. I was united with this grace. And together, the grace that I received and I labored more than everyone and proved that what I received wasn't in vain. Meaning what? That if the gospel and the grace of God comes into our lives and doesn't actually do anything other than forgive us and make us feel better about eternal salvation, and there's no outward evidence, there's no working of grace that united with us together, then it's actually in vain because the purpose of grace was never to make you feel better about what you had done without encouraging you into what you've been called into. Ever. That's why this Gospel that we've been entrusted with is so... It, we, you guys, listen. Every one of us has to be able to convey this to people. I'm telling you that none of us will be able to stand in front of him and say, well, you know, I, I, I wasn't gifted the way so-and-so was. Or, you know, I would have if I would have. No, because the master would look at you and say, well, you, you, yeah, but you could have taken it and put it in the bank. Because every one of you could have went to the bank and put it there. It would have done something. It would have accomplished something. Do you understand that if the grace that you received hasn't accomplished anything for the kingdom of God, that it hasn't actually been fully received by you and it actually could prove to be in vain. Not on God's end, on our end. Straight from the Word. So are we getting into striving and works? No, listen. Then we got to get rid of this idea that, well, there's nothing I can do. Everything is by grace. Yeah, but grace comes to accomplish something. When Paul's talking about that it was, it's not by works, it was a, a gift, he's talking about the actual fact that we were brought into the kingdom of God and that we were born again as children of God and saved by the death of Jesus on the cross and His resurrection. There is nothing you can do to earn that. You can't work your way into it. Before you were born again, no amount of good work could ever make you righteous in His sight. Apart from the free gift of grace, apart from Jesus' death on the cross and His resurrection and the blood of Jesus coming and creating the new covenant with God and a way for man to once again be in right relationship with the Father, born again into the second Adam, born first into the first Adam, born into sin, every one of us. The sin of Adam reproducing itself. It's why Satan wanted him to eat the fruit in the garden. Because what? That fruit of sin contained a seed in it that would keep reproducing after its own kind. But the Gospel of Jesus says this, that Jesus came and said He was the first fruit of God. And He hung on a tree. Cursed is any man who hangs upon a tree. And then He said, you have to eat of My flesh. What's He saying? The first Adam, the first man ate the fruit of the tree of sin, of the knowledge of good and evil, and sin, the fruit, reproduced itself inside of him and has been reproducing itself inside of every person that is ever born from that point. Every single one of us born into sin. Jesus says, now every one of you has to come and eat of Me, the first fruit of God that hangs upon a tree. Why? Because that's the fruit of righteousness and then that will begin to reproduce itself inside of us as the seed of God that's implanted inside of us begins to reproduce itself inside of us and what happens when you start reproducing as a tree good fruit but what happens if fruit is not used falls to the ground it rots 
it's good for nothing. So we can take this message, but oh, so so you're saying that, that if I'm not doing, listen, no, I'm not saying that. Paul said that, inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Master said that. Jesus said that. That everybody had to do something was what was given to them. They did nothing to earn it. It says a master went to his servants. What does that mean? It means he owed them nothing. He owed them nothing. They hadn't done anything to deserve what he gave them. It was a gift. But once he gave them that gift, there was a responsibility that came with it that that gift would be used to reproduce itself over and over and over and over so that he could come along and reap where he had not sown. That's the way that God reaps where He hasn't sown. It's you and I going places and reproducing by sowing seed. And then fruit comes up. See, you don't have to worry about whether you see the fruit come up or not. You don't have to. All you have to do is be faithful to be obedient to sow seed where God tells you to sow seed. To water seed where God tells you to water seed because He's the one that brings the increase. But it does say one man sows and another man waters, but God brings the increase. Meaning what? There's a part that man plays and there's a part that God plays. Because a man sows and a man waters and God gives the increase. It doesn't say no one sows, no one waters, and God just makes increase. It says a man sows and a man waters, but God brings the increase. Meaning what? All we have to do is be obedient to what He's called us to and trust that He'll do everything that we can but He does need us to be obedient with what was entrusted to us. So if He's given us something, it's for us, but then it's for others. If we take it and stick it in the ground in a, in a jar, it can't reproduce. You take a seed, put it in a jar, close the lid on top of it, and bury it in the ground. It does nothing. But if a seed falls to the ground and dies, then it can bear much fruit. Meaning what? Everything that we've been given is first for us and then for other people. It's not about works to prove anything. It's the proof that grace has been received that causes works. You're not outworking so that you can prove something. The work that you're doing is proof itself. You don't wake up in the morning and go, oh man, I have to prove that the grace that I got wasn't given to me in vain, so I have to go do something. No, you wake up in the morning saying, Father God, my life belongs to You. You purchased my life with the blood of Your Son. It's not my life. It belongs to You, God. And today, I'm going to be led by Your Spirit. Today, God, if there's anywhere that I go that You want me to share the Gospel, You want me to pray for somebody, if You have a word to give somebody through me, what are You doing? You're saying, God, everything You've given me, I want to go out and I want to sow it everywhere that I can. Not so that I can prove the grace wasn't received in vain, but because the grace wasn't received in vain, I want to do those things. And if I find myself in a place where I'm not wanting to give away what was given to me, then I have to get alone with Him and ask Him, God, why has this Gospel not transformed my heart to the point that I want to give this away? Don't start just giving it away just to do it so that you can prove something to yourself. Because that's the most miserable life ever. That's how legalism starts. Legalism starts by me saying that this is what God said my life should look like, so I'm going to make my life look like that so that I can prove that I have what God says. You're trying to work your way into something rather than discovering something that leads to you doing those things. It's backwards. It's like when God says He loves a cheerful giver. Don't paint a fake smile on your face and give because God loves a cheerful giver. Don't do that. 
If you're not cheerfully giving, get alone with the Father and ask Him, God, you said in your word that you love when I give cheerfully, and I'm just being honest. I'm not very cheerful about my giving. God, if I'm being honest, I'm not actually very cheerful when it comes time to give. In fact, when they start talking about giving in church, I get a little bit angry. Or I start getting these thoughts of, all they want is my money. Why should I give? Don't paint a smile. (laughs) Yeah. That's exactly what it sounds like. Ah! (laughs) I think that's what God hears. Because we have these eloquent statements backed by facts and backed by times when somebody scammed us or when somebody gave and they said they were doing this and it really turned out to be that. And we have all these reasons why we shouldn't give and we're trying to be wise stewards and all this stuff. You know, a lot of times wise steward actually is is a code word for stingy. I'm just going to leave that there for wherever that lands. But just be careful that in the name of being a wise steward, you're not actually being greedy and holding on to something you were never called to hold on to. But honestly, here's how it works. So if I recognize that in my heart, I don't fake a smile so that to everybody around me, it looks like I'm cheerfully giving. That's what legalism does. That's what religion does. Those are fig leaves. Adam and Eve, sin. They know they need to cover their sin, so they make fig leaves. And the fig leaf covers my sin from you and covers your sin from me, but it doesn't cover our sin in the sight of God. And Adam and Eve understood that. That's why when God came walking into the garden, even though they were covered with fig leaves, they hid behind a tree because they knew that nothing they had done with their own hands was good enough to stand before a holy God. God understands that too. It's why He makes a covering out of animal skin so that they would understand that the sacrifice was made by Him. And if He made the covering, then it was good enough to cover their sin and be able to stand in His sight. That's the Gospel of Jesus. So think about it. If He says in His Word that He loves a cheerful giver, then that means there's a place that I can know Him and understand Him and trust Him and believe Him to where when I give, I'm being cheerful. So rather than faking it, rather than putting on a smile, rather than everyone around me saying, wow, look at Roy cheerfully giving. Because man's looking at the painted on smile. The fake clap. The little woohoo. That really is, ah. Come on, because man's busy looking at the outside, but God's looking at the heart. So whether you head fake everybody in the room or not doesn't matter because when you stand before Him alone, you'll know that no matter how many people would come and try to convince God, they wouldn't change His mind about what's going on in your heart. You could get alone with God and you could tell Him, all right, God, you want to see if I'm cheerful or not? Call every person who was at church. Every one of them heard me shout and be excited. Every one of them that came by saw me smile. And the guys that passed the plate know that I gave it with a smile on my face and even a little laugh because I'm cheerful. And God would be like, you don't understand. Because all those people can see at the outside, but I'm actually looking at your heart. So if that's the case, then that must mean this. It must mean that there's a place in Him where I can trust Him, believe Him, and be so excited about who He is and what He's promised that I cheerfully give. And if I'm not there, this is what I owe it to myself to do. Not to you. I owe it to me. God, why is it that I don't cheerfully give? 
God, why is it that something I've received from you has not reproduced itself inside of me? Because it says a seed reproduces after its own kind, which means if God has given to us generously, then generosity should be reproducing itself inside of me. Because every seed reproduces after its own kind. So that means everything that God has sowed into your life, the fruit of that contains the seed to reproduce that in your life. So if God, it was His good pleasure to give us the kingdom. So that means that He's a cheerful giver. So if He gave to me cheerfully, that means everything I've received from Him contains the ability to reproduce that cheerful giving inside of me. So God, if that's not happening, I don't want to fake it until I make it. I don't want to try to head fake everyone around me. I can't rely on the fact that people would say I'm cheerful when I give. And I'm using this because it's such an easy statement that God loves a cheerful giver. There is a lot. Everyone, the people of this church are amazingly cheerful and amazingly generous. So I'm not saying this to try to shake money loose from the tree. I'm saying this because it's such an easy example, right? But listen, I mean, if it shakes money loose from the tree, cool, but no, it's not why I'm doing it. If I get alone with him and I ask him, and my heart is, God, I want my heart to look the way that you said that you'd love for it to look. And, I'm let, and I let Him father me. And I'm honest with myself. And I'm honest before Him. Grace will come. And it will actually change me to the point where my heart lines up with the heart that He desires for me to have. Because if you delight yourself in the Lord, He'll give you the desires of your heart. Meaning what? If I delight myself in Him, if He's my delight, it doesn't mean as long as God, You are my delight, can I please have an airplane? It's not what that's about. It's God, my delight is in You and suddenly He's placing desires in my heart so that the things that I want inside my heart line up with the things He wants me to want. And Suddenly, my heart begins to look like His. And then I can say like Jesus, my will is to do the will of my Father. God, I thank You for Your Word today. God, I thank You that we would receive from You everything that You have, God. That there would never be a time where You sow something into our lives that we take, God, and we bury it in the ground so that we can access it whenever we want, but it's not actually reproducing itself out in the world. God, I thank You that every one of us can do something with this Gospel we've been entrusted to. God, that every one of us can do something with it so that it's reproducing, so that You can walk into a field that You've never sown in, God. And reap a harvest because there were people who were faithful to sow what You entrusted to us. I thank You for that, God. I thank You that everything You've asked of us, You've graced us for. And there's a place in You, God, where our heart can look exactly like You say that You love for it to look. God, You said for us as earthly fathers not to frustrate our children. That means that You as a good father, better than any earthly father, would never frustrate Your children. Never ask of us something that we are incapable of. Never ask of us something that You haven't graced us to not only be able to do, God, but to be able to show others a way that they can live like that as well. I just thank You for that, God. I thank You that You put inside of every one of us an awe of this salvation which has come through Your Son, Jesus Christ. That You put inside of every one of us just a joy and a desire to see everyone come to know You the way that we've known You, God. That everywhere we go, we would take what was given to us 
and we would extend it to others so that Your kingdom can reproduce itself over and over and over and over again. So that when we stand before You, we hear You say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. You took what was entrusted to You and You were faithful with it. And You've allowed me to reap so much that I didn't personally sow because You were faithful with what I sowed into You. I thank You for that in Jesus' name. Amen.